Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 145 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. I hope all of you are safe, well, and healthy uh, under these uh, still very uh, unfortunate circumstances. Things are starting to open up a little bit uh, globally. Uh, squash courts may be opening up where you are, um, but still we have to remain uh, uh, and keep our civic responsibility and remain safe and do things the right way. So, uh, Whatever your circumstances, I hope it's all going uh, well for you. Now today on episode 145, uh, we have a friend of the podcast coming back on. I think it might be his third or fourth appearance. Uh, Rob Dinerman, a man who uh, knows the squash, his history. Uh, he's written several books. Uh, most recently, The Sheriff of Squash, The Life and Times of Sheriff Khan, as well as uh, uh, several others, including the history of Harvard squash and the history of uh, Princeton squash and, and uh, Rob and I have a tremendous chat and there's several things to talk about. Uh, firstly, uh, we get into the brown squash situation, uh, which uh, many of you uh, know they cut their squash program, a historical uh, uh, program there. It's been around the, probably since the inception of the varsity scene in uh, the U.S., the Ivy League, uh, one of the Ivy League schools there. It has a lot of tradition, not necessarily uh, one of the better uh, squash programs especially recently but uh, we talk about that situation we also get into uh, in keeping with uh, with varsity squash uh, we talk a bit about last year's um, varsity season and then we get into uh, one of uh, Rob's passions uh, he's a professional doubles uh, player himself and we talk about the pro doubles for what that tour and what that's been going through the top names in the game the the mudges the manic mathers uh, the Chris Callises, how they, uh, what they've been up to, how they did on, in the uh, season last year. And uh, we also uh, get Rob's insight on the COVID situation. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode, episode 145, with a friend of the podcast, Rob Dinnerman. Now, before we get into that, though, I just want to talk to you about our sponsor, Active Scout. Active Scout is a growth and retention tool for squash clubs. Now that clubs are slowly looking into opening their doors, we want to help your community grow. Not all members are returning from this break, so growing membership is more important than ever before. Start with you and a few of your regular partners. Active Scout can be your chat tool for arranging games and going for a jog or going for a jog. Post updates about your club on the social platform and check out what other clubs are doing to get up and running to get up and running faster. This is key. Uh, next step, let your club manager know about Active Scout. If your club still uses pen and paper as a booking system, this is an opportunity to upgrade for free. That's right, upgrade for free. If your club already has a booking system, let us know what your system is and we'll shortlist it for platform integration. Active Scout was designed by a level three coach to help grow our sport, so reach out to us today. Now, Active Scout is beta testing. Contact Rob at ActiveScout.com or Rob at ActiveScout. That's Active Scout without the E. And we will send you a link to download the app. The email is just like the website, Rob at ActiveScout.com. That's ActiveScout without the E. So get in touch with ActiveScout and let's get back on the court in the safe way, in the right way, and in an efficient way. So here it is, episode 145. Friend of the podcast, Rob Dinnerman. There you are. Okay. Well, Robert, uh, great to see you. Uh, and uh, first, before we get started, I just wanted to know uh, how you and yours are uh, are doing during this uh, difficult uh, time right now. I've been. Uh, everything's fine at my end. I'm trying to be careful in you know whatever ways one is supposed to be uh, during this period. But uh, and anything can happen at any time. But so far, so good. I've been uh, I've been fine in terms of my health. That's good. Thank good you for to asking. hear. Good to hear. You're you're in New York, right, Rob? Yes, uh, I am. Yeah. So I guess I mean, uh, California, and New York are probably the two states that kind of stick out when it comes to uh, sort of the numbers and, and the way the ways that the governors have been uh, dealing with it. So uh, without getting too political, because that's not my thing on this show but uh, oh, show podcast um just wondering how how you feel uh, cuomo is uh, handling it 
I mean, he, he takes an awful, he's very deliberate when he's speaking at his news conferences every day. Um, yeah. And, uh, but, but I think he's being sensible and I think he's trying to, you know, be prudent in the way he uh, reopens the city and the state. Uh, this coming Monday, the 8th is kind of the next phase of New York's reopening. Uh, and um, again, I, I think they're trying to be careful. And I, I think that He's doing the best he, that can be expected under these circumstances. Right on. Well, we'll get into little, we'll get into a little more on the, on the COVID situation as it pertains to uh, what we love squash in, in yep. a bit. But before we get into that, uh, uh, one of the big uh, reasons why I, I was hoping we could we could have you on. We've got you here today. Is uh, the the varsity uh, squash scene now? I'm not sure if this is. Um, collateral damage from the COVID situation or not, but it probably sounds like it, even though Brown may not uh, want to say that. But uh, according to, to the university statement, uh, they, they're cutting 11 varsity sports as part of their mm -hmm. excellence in athletics initiative, as they call it, golf, fencing, um, and track and field, as well as squash. So I'm just wondering, uh, sadly, squash, so uh, what, have you, uh, what have you heard? Well, to begin with, I think the excellence of athletics is a little bit ironic in view of the fact that they're cutting the sports that they are. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of Brown, there's been quite a bit of pushback uh, and some very angry reaction in the in the squash community, particularly of course among play, people who played squash at Brown. Mm. Uh, the school does not have a you know it doesn't have a history of winning Ivy League championships, but it's been a, a solid, respectable program over the years. Stuart Legasic has been coaching there for several decades. From what I gather, he read about it or found out about the fact that the sport he's been coaching all this time is, was cut. He did not hear that from Brown University. He either heard or read about it, uh, wow. you know, on a broadcast or, or on, a, on an offering. He was not, not, he was not consulted, and from what I gather, he was not informed by Brown, which is pretty shabby treatment. That is, my yeah. View. Yeah, um, and Brown has had uh, has had its moments. I mean, I. Well, history of squash at Princeton that came out a few years ago, and I hadn't even realized there were several years there where Brown actually beat Princeton, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in squash. So it's not like Brown, has, you know, doesn't ever win any matches. They've had some good players. They've had some good teams. Um, a player named Breck Bailey, who uh, went to Brown in class of 06, he won the John Skillman Award, which is sort of, right. the, the, sort of the, the highest award that a senior who's playing college men's squash can win. Uh, they, again, they've had some good, they, they, you know, they don't threaten to win the Ivies. And I don't know, what, it, I think their record was not great in the Ivies this past year or for several years. But they've had good players and good teams. And, and the people who played there uh, are very upset about it. And the people who are playing there now, I'm sure, are even more upset. So this has not gone over well in the squash community. And I've been surprised at how many people who went to other colleges have have still voiced some unhappiness about about it because I mean it's a little bit of a slippery slope too you know when does yeah. who knows what other uh, squash uh, programs might be cut yeah, once once other squash programs get a sniff of that then they they might uh, right, they might exactly. say here's our here's our uh, window if exactly. they so consider that right and when you cut a sport back from a varsity sport to a club sport it just not only does it make a difference in terms of financing it does make a difference in terms of perception. And just in terms of the program's profile, so I mean that yeah. that, that program is going to really suffer if this if this decision remains, as I say, and it probably will. But I will say there's been quite a bit of angry reaction to it, and and I know that there's I think petitions being signed, etc. Mm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the petitions uh, on on the Facebook. They've been going around uh, quite a bit uh, on the social uh, media side of things. But I was just wondering, I mean, with, with the varsity scene, uh, over the last few years, the momentum that it's generated, it's been huge, and, and it's such a great game, Such and you would know because you follow it quite closely, uh, it's such fun to watch. Uh, I, I'm just wondering, uh, at the squat, U.S. squash level, uh, U.S. squash administrative level, uh, is there any pushback from there? Because they've obviously invested a lot of time, a lot of money, not only in varsity squash, but in high school squash and promoting it amongst juniors. I mean, this is a big thing if it starts to trickle down. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, U.S. squash, I think right now, is more focused on uh, figuring out protocols in terms of getting people just playing squash again. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, they, I, I'm not aware of exactly what, how they've reacted to the Brown situation. That's only broken the last couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, again, I think most of the, I think most of the, um, uh, most of the statements that they've been issuing over the last, over recent weeks has been more just in terms of the viability of people getting on court in some, in some context, uh, whether it's hitting a loan or, different protocols involving the clubs, all the clubs virtually are still closed. Yeah. So it's not, yeah. it's, you know, the, I mean, the club I belong to, the, 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 all the clubs in New York, all the clubs that I'm aware of in New York that have, that have a squash program, I don't think any of them are open right now. Maybe they're even not even allowed to be open based on whatever Cuomo's edicts yeah. are, but whether they're allowed to or not, they're not open. And, um, you know, there's not going to be any squash until they reopen. Yeah. And the, even then, it's going to be a real challenge figuring out uh, how to sort of play squash safely. Um, I, I really, you know, there's talk about what they have to do with the doorknobs and about, um, you know, what happens when you handle the ball between points, et cetera. There's actually, I think one rule that they want people not to wipe their hands on the glass yeah. back wall or the sidewall. How well, are that's such a big part of the game, isn't it? I mean, how are you yeah. going to get your hand dry between points? Yeah, you know, people's shirts are going to be soaking wet after a couple of points. They're not. They, they you have to yeah. be able to do yeah. things like that. But the biggest problem of all, of all, I don't think, has anything to do with the surfaces. I think the biggest problem of all, and I don't see any way around this, is having to do with the breathing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no. Uh, I was talking about this with my uh, with, the, with my club here in uh, in the UAE. I mean, we're, we're we're still not open, but gyms are opening now. So. Uh, and I'm sort of the de facto pro at the club. There's no one really there. So they've asked me to put together a list of things that we could list the games potentially that we could play that would uh, also include some type of distancing between the players, like a boast drive routine or drop drive routines where it's competitive and you keep points, things like that. But I saw Squash Canada's uh, really press release or release to the community. And it did another interesting and odd one was uh, carrying two balls on the court, which. Uh, and how is that? And how do, how do they expect that to work exactly? I, I don't think that's going to work. Okay. I mean, <laughs> what's, what, I, I don't even know what the theory is. I mean, I mean, yeah. with one ball at a time. if you, if you, yeah, I think the theory was if, okay, say you and I were playing, we both have our own ball. You serve, yeah. you win the serve, you serve, you win the point you collect the ball. I win the next point. You collect the ball. I use my ball. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. So you don't, so you only end up touching your ball. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. I but uh, to me, that's just, I mean, that's just, uh, you'll get, yeah. I just don't see that as being viable. You know, the, the, the player, uh, the Ted Gross, who was a long time. Gross, squash yeah. and who, daily, who daily squash report. Okay, He's the publisher yeah. of He had an interesting theory, and that's that uh, you can play with one ball, but the player has to, after the point ends, whoever's going to serve, sort of with his racket, scoops the ball against the sidewall and swings at it when it comes off the sidewall. Okay. So nobody, yeah. I, I'm, you know, you're not going to be able to serve as well as you can serve when you've got the ball in your hand and, and can, right. you know, but, but that actually is a way of playing. No, it is. Yeah, you could the eliminate ball. the two balls by, by doing right. that, right? And then if you... Right. Uh, and nobody's touching any of the balls in that circumstance. And, and once you touch the ball, maybe uh, if you end up but touching no the ball, there's some sort of penalty. <laughs> but there's no reason to touch it if yeah. you, if no, you do no. that. No, but exactly. Yeah, yeah. no reason to touch it. Just to kind of bounce it on people, the strings. Yeah. And eventually people will learn to serve reasonably well doing it that way. Mm, yeah, you could kill It'll a, take a little couple while, of birds there. Right. So anyway, that was one thing. But again, even if you do both drives, you're still going to be breathing the same air. No, exactly. Eventually yeah. you're going to change and you're going to be at the front and you're expelling air. You're expelling, you're breathing your opponent's air. Right. And, and uh, it's in a close circumstance and there's, and I don't see that there's any way around that. It's, I guess that's where the science of it all comes in because if there's some sort of uh, research done on, high sort of high uh, like sports like squash in the terms of how much distance is required or you'd be out of harm's way like if, then you then you could potentially uh met, think you might be safe but there's no there's nothing out there like that at the moment so. and apparently the when you expel air it's, it's it's actually even more than the six feet that's considered with distancing it's more like right. 10 or 12 feet and right. not only that 
both players' lungs are completely open because they're exerting so much. Right. So, they're so I guess, be guess you need to be wearing one of those uh, Richard Millman masks, right? You got to be wearing so one of those big to, masks. To me, that's to me that's the that's the biggest challenge of all. Yeah. No, exactly. I um, just wondered what what your what your thoughts are on the mask or the the the, the eye mask that seems to be out there. I don't think that's going to protect people. You're no? still breathing heavily. I I don't uh, that air's going somewhere. It's. I still think that that's not. I don't think. I mean, I know some people. There are some people who are actually part owners of the eye mask company who have a conflict of interest who've been saying, "Oh, the eye mask is the way to go." I don't right. think it's going to solve the problem anyway. Plus, there it's very, very eye mask can be very distracting visually for plenty of people. Oh yeah, yeah. I would yeah. imagine. I've never used. I mean, I've never used one before, so I wouldn't know. But. Um... Yeah, we've got to find a way around it, though, because we're not going to, you know, COVID's not going to go away anytime uh, soon, I don't think. So. That's right. That's right. That's right. But uh, so U.S. squash, though, they, they, they're they busy with, uh, you know, trying to manage this. Now, I've had uh, recently, I've spoken with uh, a couple of pros there in the New York area who both opened uh, in New York and in Boston. Uh, Nick Taylor and um, Peter Nickel came on. He has two clubs now in New York. Unfortunately, they just opened and now they're closed. I know. Yeah, right. but he was very candid about it. He's, you know, he said the right things. He said, he, you know, I don't expect them. I don't expect them to be open, and I don't want them to open until we're ready. But others have said, um, you know, we have, we can play. We we can get on court with the coach and a, a pupil can get on court and manage this. So uh, we've got two sides to to this thing. Uh, I, I get the feeling, and I, I'm with you too, that it's probably best to err on the side of caution, isn't it? And not only that, again, I just uh, I think the breathing problem is the real problem. I don't think I don't think the surface problem is much of a problem. I think the breathing problem is a real problem. Right. You know, and right. you were talking about college squash, uh, and um, Brown has right now dropped their program, and that will or will not remain the case. Uh, hopefully, it won't. But as of now, they have. But how about all the colleges that haven't dropped their program? You know, the 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 college season this past spring. Hmm. ended just in the nick of time. Yes. The weekend, the week, it ended on the first weekend of March, I believe. It was during the week right after that that the Ivy League canceled all spring sports. Right. No tennis. Uh, I mean, I, I was actually, I'm actually writing a book about the history of tennis at Princeton right now. And okay. they had a, they've had a tremendous winter run. They were very excited about winning the Ivy. They have not won the Ivy League championship, the conference championship since 1988. And this team really was absolutely primed to do so. And their whole season was wiped out, and, and the whole Ivy League season. And it was wiped out right very shortly before what would have been their first match. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, the, and as I say, the, the, last, the weekend right before that was the weekend where the college individual squash championships were held. Mm-hmm. If that had been one week later, they might not have even been held. Right. The college mm-hmm. has got their season in you know, with unbelievably little room to spare. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, they got the whole thing in the individual and the team uh, event yes. went off without a hitch. And it was a and great, that, yeah, uh, but, a good but, one but, too. But, but barely. But barely, yeah. yeah just there's, barely, there's yeah. two days to spare and that was it. And the yeah. real question right now is is what's going to happen this coming season. Yeah, well, uh, it doesn't look like there's going to be a se- I mean, what, they, they start in December though, don't they? They start late. They start, so that, that, Well, uh, the, uh, there's something called the Ivy Scrimmages, which is kind of uh, an unofficial uh, but pretty competitive match among the Ivy League teams. That's kind of in the middle of November, I think, or early okay. to mid-November. Okay. So there's, um, but I mean, just in terms, I mean, Princeton, for one, will decide in July and not until then if they're even going to have their uh, open classes this year. The students are going to be on campus. Right. All those colleges not only ended their uh, their spring sports season before it started, but they all of them sent their students home, yeah. and they have no, all I, the spring all the spring classes were done remotely. Yeah. No, we're doing so the they, same they, thing. The, the same thing over here. I work at a, at a college here, and everything's online and uh, for the summer semester as well, and it uh, certainly looks that way for the, the fall semester, in part, anyways. Uh, I've actually been told to go back. I can start going back to campus. The faculty can start to return to campus at uh, 50% of uh, capacity, and then they're going to see how that 50%. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so uh-huh. we'll, we'll uh-huh. see how that 
goes. I, I haven't signed up for. I'm going to start going in next week. So, but uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So yeah. Let's just. I mean, uh, the fact that maybe it's starting uh, later on in the maybe early or late winter that that might bode well. Maybe the timing of all of this uh, bodes well for squash. Uh, yeah, it certainly gives them more time to get ready than uh, than than the football teams have in the fall. Mm. Well, that's uh, going to be the template. I was going to say that. Don't 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 you think? Like when we get, I mean, you hear now baseball, basketball, uh, NFL football. They they've got their big seasons coming. They're, they're fast approaching. Ice hockey, all of this in those sports. There's a lot of breathing, heavy breathing. Full, you know, it's contact sport. Uh, if they manage to. To get things going, maybe squash can look at that and say, maybe we can do that as well. That's possible. There's not as much heavy breathing on each other in baseball than there is in no, squash. No, baseball, no. Baseball is like cricket, right? Right, right, right. You can just kind of sleep out there in the outfield. Right, right. And even the tennis, where you're outdoors and on the other side of the net, you know, those events aren't taking place on schedule either right now. Right. No, exactly. So, uh, yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm a little bit concerned about what next season is going to look like. I'm a member of the Pro Doubles Tour, uh, you know, the North American Pro yeah. Doubles Tour. And that season usually runs from October. The first tournament is usually in October, and they run until April. What happened this past year was uh, the last event took place in February. There were several events scheduled for the spring. They were all called off. Right. And, um, and based on the last... Uh, email that was sent by the person running that doubles tour to the player membership. The current plan is more in terms of having the tournaments begin in early 2021. Yeah, so uh, yeah, again, yeah. they they might adjust their thinking based on some development in the next few months. But as of right now, their thinking is to not have the event that they've had in the fall. Right. Well, I guess a lot of it has to do with, with money too, doesn't it? I mean, if you have the funding to be able to sort of do all the testing and all the real, sort of all the details, like like the, uh, the cage fighting, they were able to manage uh, to pull off a few events, and they apparently they have a lot of money and able to be able to do so. But uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how the, well, the, the higher profile sports. Uh, but even in terms of money, I mean, the, the two, I mean, it was actually a very, very well-written letter that the uh, director of the tour wrote. And, and the two sort of guiding principles are, number one, uh, again, the doubles court is an indoor enclosed space, and they don't want the players to be in danger from each other from, mm -hmm. with the breathing. But also that, uh, that, that the double squash community, they want to be at the matches. They don't want to be watching the matches that are streamed. The, 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 the gallery itself plays a role in the match. That's the whole, that's the doubles tour in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, that, that it's such a small, but uh, it's a very tight community, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and fight, literally tight. I mean, they like watching matches when they're right on top of each other in that gallery. <laughs> and uh, the du the doubles the people who are the patrons who buy the tickets for the doubles tournaments, a lot of them and part of the main reason they want to even be in involved in these events is that there's also a pro am in which a pro is matched right. up with an amateur member. The, a lot of the the a lot of the people who buy tickets for those doubles events are in the pro am, right? And they don't and they don't want they would not buy the tickets if they if there wasn't a pro am for them to play in. Right. The Pro-Am is a very, very important part of their whole tournament experience. So not only do they want to be in the gallery on top of each other watching the pros, they also want to be on court playing with the pros. Yeah, absolutely. And so, both, and so in, those are both reasons to make sure that it's a safe situation before they start play, which is why they're, as of now, thinking in terms of not having any events before the beginning of, of 2021. Right. Well, you, I mean, I was going to ask uh, about the doubles uh, circuit, Rob, because I, I mean, that's obviously you, you, you are playing on the circuit as well. You're a player on the, on the pro doubles tour, but, uh, and for a long time uh, you have been, but uh, just wondering how the season had, uh, how last season had gone uh, in terms of the, you know, there was a lot, I think the last time you came on, you told me about the manic method. He had an injury and wasn't sure yep. if he was going to be back. And then some new guys coming in and, you never know from you know any ex pros that have moved over here that could end up on the tour. 
Uh, and there were several that, that were there. And were then also, I, I wanted to get your take on uh, the state of, of the doubles game as well. So before we get into that, uh, but, uh, just tell us a bit about last season and how it all uh, played out. Okay, well, yeah. the, the article that I wrote summarizing the season, uh, yeah. the, you know, recapping it, was, entitled, was titled A Season of Twists and Turns. Okay. Which, is exactly what, which is exactly what it was. Uh, there mm. was um, and, that, and it made for a very, very exciting tour, oh. mm. which is why it was such a shame that, you know, the spring got canceled because things were sort of coming to a head competitively. You write about Manic Mathur. He ruptured his Achilles tendon uh, in October of 2018 at the beginning of the season before last. Missed that whole season. He and Chris Callis had been the sort of number one doubles team at the time. Chris uh, played the rest of that season and with different partners and did well. During this past summer, he had a, a knee operation because he'd injured his knee late in the year. Yeah. Two, began the first event of this past 2019-20 season. Both of them were coming off fairly major operations. Manic with his Achilles which is a, you know, an operation that has a, a rehab of almost a year. And uh, Chris had had uh, a, a surgery on his left knee. And there was a real question, you know, how, how was either of them going to be? How are they going to be together, et cetera? They, um, they wound up actually winning the first tournament of the season uh, in, at the Maryland wow. Club Open, which, mm -hmm. which answered a lot of questions. But uh, they had a lot of, I mean, let, let's put, they played, they entered eight tournaments, they only played in five. They won four of the five. Uh, or, uh, they only played to completion in five. They won four of those five. There was only one full match in which they lost. But uh, in the semifinals of a tournament in Westchester, shortly after the Maryland Club Open, uh, Maddox sprained his ankle late in the semifinal match. Mm. He wound up winning that semifinal, but his ankle swelled up overnight so that he was not able to play in the final. They had to default that. Right. At the North right. American Open, which is one of the key events of the season, yeah. Chris Callis uh, got ill with food poisoning, yeah. or, maybe, or maybe it was the flu. He was physically ill just a day or two before the event, which was too close to the event for Manic to be able to get a replacement partner. Right. Uh, and it wasn't, was it, wasn't other, a poison pizza, was it, uh, Rob? No, it wasn't, uh, wasn't like what Michael Jordan uh, <laughs> was afflicted by uh, in, no. in the uh, in the 97 NBA playoffs. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess what I'm saying is when they were okay, they were, they were very good, mm, but mm. They, they were nicked up. Different things happened to kind of throw them off course pretty much uh, all season. Oh, and then, uh, I mean, the, the two biggest events of the winter are the North American Open, yeah. in which Chris got food poisoning too close to the event for them, to for Malik to find a partner, and they both had to drop out. And the other really big event is a tournament in Brooklyn called the, the Dave Johnson. It's at the Heights Casino Club. It's the longest continually running doubles tournament of, of any of them. Wow. And it's considered a very prestigious event. Damian Mudge used to dominate that event. He won the event unbelievably 17 years in a row. Well, uh, is that his home? That's his home course, right? No, no, Damian's the pro. No, Damian's the pro at the University Club of New York. Oh, okay. this, is a, this is at the Heights Casino okay. Club in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, Damien, incidentally, who missed all of last year, meaning 2018-19 with his with a bad knee, and wanted to come back this year, he announced his retirement over the last summer. So yeah, he yeah. was out of the picture altogether. Yeah, that, that was about, right around the time your, your, of your last visit, if I if I'm Okay, that's say. probably yeah, the, yeah. the case. I, I mean, I interviewed him at length, and he had an amazing, amazing career. Um, uh, but anyway, at the Heights... Uh, the, the Heights Casino event, Chris and Manic also weren't able to play because at a, at a pro-am at the University Club of New York a few weeks earlier, Manic uh, badly injured his left hamstring Ooh, and had okay. to make about a month or so. Yeah. Chris had to play with somebody else and he, and he and his partner lost. The point is they were a bit nicked up this past season, yeah, even yeah. after both recovered from the major injuries they'd had the season before. And that, uh, you know, left the door open for some teams to... Uh, you know, to come in and fill the void and do very well. Um, Yvonne Baden, who'd been one of the top players on the tour for a while, he teamed up with James Stout. James Stout is the, currently the World Rackets singles and doubles champion okay. and has won the U.S. Open in court tennis. He's a very good all-around rackets person. Uh, he, plays, he played more doubles events this past year than in the past, and he and uh, Yvonne won a very, very exciting uh 
final in the last big tournament, which is Heights Casino, the event that Chris had to play with the substitute partner. So, I mean, my larger point is that it was an exciting season. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of little setbacks, uh, a tournament a tournament in Toronto, the Cambridge Club Doubles, which has held, taken place for many years. Mm -hmm. They kind of removed themselves from the schedule and were held just as an invitational, um, and that was unfortunate. But basically, it was a vibrant and exciting doubles tour with with many split mixed results from one weekend to the next and many of the best players you know showing their stuff at various points uh and then having to uh and then then having different things happen uh yeah. john russell and scott arnold were a tre mm. tremendous team yeah. john had to miss that heights casino Both great great singles players as well uh, right. Well, I think Russell was the number one ranked junior in England when he mm -hmm. was at that age. Uh, and Scott's a very, really good player as well, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, Russell is also the coach at the Episcopal Academy, which is a, which is a, a prep school, a, high, a good squash playing high school in suburban Philadelphia. Right. As it happens, the U.S. National High School Championships were the same weekend as the Johnson event. And Russell had to had to coach his team, right. so Scott had to play with somebody else, and uh, and he played actually with another Australian player, Zach Alexander, right, well, prolific played, uh, singles player. Yeah, well, he's played on the on the PSA Love singles tour yeah. for a long time. Uh, anyway, they got to the final and lost a very very exciting final uh, to uh, Yvonne and uh, and James Stapp. Um, yeah. I actually did the color commentary on the streaming for that. That okay. weekend. Okay. And yeah. Will Will Carlin, who's usually the MC of the uh, Turner Champions, he was sort of the announcer, and I did the color with him. And so I watched a number of the matches that weekend. I also played in the event, but I was eliminated much earlier. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it was really it was great, great stuff. Uh, Heights Casino uh, is a closed kind of cozy club, uh, and it's it's always got an ex extraordinarily sort of uh, amped up atmosphere. Yeah. And the games were very close and there were some spectacular shots at the end. And it really, you know, at that time, which was late February, the virus was not really yet an issue yet. No, no. Yeah. So no uh, one's really... It, it, yeah. took, it, it was only a couple of weeks afterwards that it became a major issue. But at right. that point, it wasn't an issue. And there's no crowd where the, where the people are more on top of each other than Heights Casino because it's mm -hmm. not a small bleacher. It's a big, it's a small bleacher. Yeah. And, um, and it was just, it just felt like you never... And anyone who was there that weekend, it felt like the doubles tour was absolutely at its peak. That's awesome. And That's it was awesome. going to be a great spring season. And Manic was going to be over his hamstring pretty soon. And you just wouldn't have expected that things were just going to get stopped. Yeah. Right on the spot, practically. Well, that's awesome. I mean, for the for the pro. I mean, normally throughout the last. 15 years or so, as you, uh, as you had mentioned the previous times you've been on, the, the double circuit had been dominated by one or two pairs every year for several right. years in succession. But this year uh, seemed to be uh, different. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that breeds a little bit of something different and more exciting. That's the, right. And there, yeah. was, there was more depth. There was more depth to the tour this year. And there mm -hmm. were and there were more. There were four or five or six teams that would come into a tournament with a legitimate chance, either maybe not of winning it, but of go, but of advancing far. Right. And you're right. That was not true. When I mean, Mudge was a tremendous presence and a great addition to the tour in his own right. Yeah. But when he and either Manic or whoever was his partner at the time, yeah. you know, were in an event. I mean, there as recently as the 2017-18 season, they went through the whole season undefeated. Yeah, I mean, from what I mean, I, I follow the doubles a little bit, and I just all I remember is weight, mudge, mudge, and yeah. whomever uh, up yeah, until right. uh, maybe right. a year and a half or so ago. But uh, right. I was just gonna. I know you. I know you've got to run soon, Rob. So no, uh, I'm fine. I'm fine till nine. I'm I'm fine till for quite a while still. Okay. Now I was going to ask you uh, because it, when I think it was the Cambridge uh, event in Toronto, and then maybe one other event. I'm not sure. Uh, that were canceled due to I'm not, not sure, sure why uh, due yeah, to uh, sponsor, but it, it's not like uh, the the pro doubles tour would would uh, fold because of something like that because it, each event is kind of special in and of itself isn't that the way uh, the doubles circuit is run they're not reliant upon uh, say the the PSA to sort of uh, oversee uh, each event and run it that way. 
Well, the I mean? SDA, which is the name of the association, the Squash Doubles Association, they are the you know umbrella organization under which all these tournaments take place. I mean, they, this, it, the, those events all take place under the SDA aegis. Um, yeah. But but it is definitely the case that um, probably more so than uh, than in, in the PSA, for example, that that those events that are those events are sort of their own separate event yeah. and really not. Whatever, whatever happened in Toronto that weekend, you know, it wasn't like it was going to have any kind of ripple effect on what happened in Brooklyn or what happened in Greenwich right. or any of the other sites. So yeah, there's so um, much tradition at, at these doubles events. I mean, it, it's like each club, like the Heights Casino, all of these clubs where where they hold these events are sort of established old old right. school squash facilities right. with a lot of that's right support. And I will say that's absolutely the case. And those events are, you know the ones that everybody looks forward to. They have great traditions. They, um, you know, the, the members are, the members and the players have gotten to know each other over the years because it's a very informal situation at the clubs themselves. Uh, but it was, but it's also been the case that there were a couple of brand new events that, that hopped on the tour this year. There was one new club that opened uh, in, in Southern Connecticut that had an event. So, and those are important. Those extra events sort of in between the, you know, five or six established old school long time event so right it's, it's important that different you know there was an event in denver there uh, there was a, a couple of events as i say pittsburgh had a stop and, yeah. and has had one for a while now so it's actually fairly it's a reasonably full schedule i mean there's probably somewhere between 15 and 18 events on the on the calendar and you awesome. know, they, they they do take place and and uh, yeah. they're the the, the local group there is excited about it, and, they, and uh, you know, the players look forward to it. And one, that, and also, um, no, sorry, also, sorry, some of the, some, at some of the more, the minor, the, the less major events, uh, there are some limitations, especially the ones based on prize money being below a certain amount. Uh, the top ten players are not allowed to play in those, so it does create a little bit of opportunity for some of the second tier teams to do well and, and and that will help their ranking and put them better position going into the more major ones. Well, that's good. That's good stuff. Now, I was going to ask you um, about, uh, what was it? it kind of escapes me now what, what I was going to get, what I was going to ask you, but, um, oh yeah, that's right. Um, the, the hardball, Jonathan Power and Diego Elias had this uh, neat little squash Saturdays, which uh, was very, was, which was short lived. I think they were hoping it was, go on for a little bit longer but I, I do I do really think that uh, that hardball especially overseas where people aren't familiar with it really sort of caught the attention of, a, of the squash world because it was the only squash people were watching and it was Jonathan Power and Diego Elias right. two of the biggest names even in right. retirement uh, he's the right. big name in squash and it really I think was a great showcase for just how exciting I mean hardball at the highest level is such an exciting game to watch it's absolutely riveting um yeah. and uh it's a great it's also a great great game to play under the proper circumstances now mm. from what i gather the reason it was as short-lived as it was is that power injured himself yeah, yeah. He, he, in, in the second match second match he ended, but it is, i mean you could see it happening too because I, I watched both matches and, it was it his uh, thumb or where, what, what, what did he hurt no what no it, it was his um like a, a kill a calf month it was a calf he injured his calf. Okay, that's right. That's right. You heard yeah, his calf yeah. exactly. Yeah, okay. But you could see, you could see that it was going to happen because he, you know, he didn't look in particularly great shape, but he was mm -hmm. moving like he was everywhere. He was getting everything, and he was quick and fast. But mm -hmm. you know, at, at that level, at that speed, at his age, being unfit, you knew something was going to give at some happen. point. <laughs> well, part part of the reason for that, uh, I mean, hardball squash is an incredibly good game played you know with a with a properly bouncing ball but also played in the with the proper dimensions mm. a, a hardball court is 18 and a half feet wide yeah it is yeah. not the 21 feet wide that a softball court is right right and and in my mind playing hardball squash on a softball court to begin with I think they're cheap winners all over the place. There's no way that you can be at the tee and be able to both uh, deal with a good rail and deal with a good cross court. I mean, there's just too much room on both sides of you. Right. 
So I think they're cheap winners all over the place. And I also think, and I've always said this, and I'm really sorry the power got hurt, but it is an injury waiting to happen. Yeah. You get so stretched out trying to tr track down that fast-moving ball on that 80-square-foot bigger court than a real hardball court. Yeah. That there's just it, it, you're, you're it's it's more likely than unlikely that you're going to injure muscle. Yeah, yeah. It's just I, too everything's happening too fast, and there's too much court to cover. Yeah, yeah. If I don't, I, th I don't I, think uh, Jonathan factored that into the equation when they set this. Well, I mean, uh, he <laughs> will now. He will now. Yeah. Uh, and and um, and again, I think that if uh, let me say, uh, I'll even say this: if if they had been playing on a regulation hardball court. Power would not have pulled his muscle. I think yeah. that I think that it was exactly because it was a softball court yeah. that that Power was in a situation where he could pull a muscle. Now, and it's was, not uh, just a question I mean, of the, the fact he's. Match just number one was amazing. He he got to everything. He was quick into every corner. But you could just see uh, Diego up his game, and for four games or three and a half games, Power stuck with him at, at that pace. But you could just see it was something was going to give, and it did. And it was unfortunate, but I mean that that happens to everybody. And you're gonna have, but you'll have just you'll have just as good points in terms of the angles and the excitement of watching the play if mm. they're on a regulation court. Yeah, yeah. Now most of the regulation courts don't exist any longer, so I'm not no. sure what the solution is. But all military bases in Canada have them. have hardball courts still. <laughs> yeah, in Can yeah, they were all over Canada from east to west, uh, mostly on military bases and in. All of the universities, uh, until they've upgraded, I think many of them upgraded, but they were all old North American courts. I grew up playing softball on a hardball court. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of people do that, and that's yeah. not a very good. That's not a very good game either. No, and it's tough when you go to like I used to represent the the province at nationals, and we go to Ontario or Alberta or BC where they had softball courts. So we were like, "What the that. hell is this?" <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, the the truth is. Each game should be played on the court that's the proper court for for that game. Yeah. In terms but, of the dimension, in terms of the tin height, in terms of the red lines, you know, mm -hmm. uh, playing softball on a hardball court, you can lob the ball up to the ceiling because there's yeah, no sloping yeah. side wall. Yeah. No, exactly. But I guess yeah. what I was getting at was just, you know, aside from that, the 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 excitement of a hardball game, the rallies that, that can be produced. I mean, Jonathan is a seasoned hardball player. I think he played quite a bit when he was young. He was a great hardball player, yeah. And uh, he was pulling out all the old tricks there, the old three-wall, you know, Nick Bosa. Right. And, and by the way, it's also the case that he, Jonathan, was a very, very good doubles player. Yeah. And yeah. doubles, which of course is played with a hardball, you have a lot of the same shots involved in doubles that you have in hardball singles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that's and that's why that's why double squash is so great to watch because the same shots that you were watching and enjoying in, when Power was playing Diego in in hardball singles on a softball court, you see that those shots all the time in doubles. I mean, I mean, let, don't see let me say this too, uh, Rob. I mean, in hardball and uh, like Jonathan's a shot player. We know that. Yeah, he's, exactly. He's a shot maker. Hardball, yeah. in my maybe I'm wrong here. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know more than me, but I, I just think. Hardball is more of a shot maker's game. I mean, J J JP, JP was—he yeah. looked amazing out there. The power, power has always had a kind of hardball aspect, even to his softball game. Mm, that short little backswing and then boom. Absolutely. <laughs> plus, he's got plus he's got that gambler's mentality. He he yeah. likes to you know force the action and and he's all he's you know in addition to being very gifted with his wrist and everything, he's very creative as a player. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can do so much more with that ball, can't? And uh, with that ball, what you can do a lot with that ball in terms of right. shot. He's uh, the way he plays, or the way he thinks in terms of playing, is is much more rewarded playing hardball than it actually is playing softball. I mean, in spite of which, he won all those major championships in softball, but he won those in playing softball really with a hardball-oriented game. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, I I think it really opened the world's eyes to how exciting hardball can be and then you know the, there, there may be uh some more pro pro players maybe going converting over to hardball once they uh if they move stateside or decide to do that they see that as a viable uh you know another source of uh income to add to their coaching or whatever they're due uh, in terms of their squash in uh, in the u.s 
Right. Zach Alexander, incidentally, won the U.S. Hardball Championships Nationals the last couple of times it's been played. Yeah. And actually, you know, it wasn't played this past year because the virus got in the way. But um, and, and by the way, not only was this Ivy League Spring Sports canceled, all the late March through April U.S. squash tournaments were canceled, including the Hardball Nationals and the U.S. Big Doubles and some other events. Uh, but there was actually in 2019, the way it worked out, the Hardball Nationals was held in New York at the Harvard Club the same weekend as the as the SDA Brooklyn doubles tournament mm. and um, and as hard as this is to believe uh, on on Sunday that Sunday um, Zach Alexander won the hardball national singles final and then took a subway or a taxi down to Brooklyn and uh, and won the uh, and won the doubles uh, the, the finals of the Johnson doubles as well wow <laughs> about four <laughs> about four or five hours apart that's awesome now uh, yeah. uh, did you know uh, Dean Brown at all Oh, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, well, played, I played against Dean Brown. He was, uh, he was, uh, he did, he did the commentary on the Power Saturdays. Yeah, yeah. I know Dean from back in the day, and uh, but he was a. I think he won the. He was the last winner of the Canadian Junior Hardball Championship. The last time they held that event, I think okay. under eighteen, he won that. But he, okay. he was a solid hardball player. Most of those guys from Ontario. Uh, yeah. A lot of like Scott Stoneberg. Of course, uh, you know Dean Brown, those guys, Scott Dolmage. Um, yep, we're all quite. In uh, fact, Dolmage. In fact, Dolmage won the U.S. National Hardball Championships uh, in 1988, and yeah. and uh, and I th- it was the year before that in '87. I think that he won the Canadian. Um, he won the Canadian Nationals as well. Scott Scott's a very good hardball player, and those guys played at the University of Toronto. I think most of them, and they had a team that played. They had always entered a team in the in the. American Intercollegiate Championships. Yeah, yeah. And the University of Toronto and the University of Western Ontario, both prolific uh, Canadian uh, right. varsity squads. Right. I think it was Ontario, uh, that Jack Fairs was the coach there. Well, for the University of Western Ontario, yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. And, and they Jamie Crombie had, played there as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Crombie one year got to the finals of the Intercollegiate Championships in the 80s also. So, right. I mean, those guys were, those teams were a real presence in the, in the, in the U.S., College squash scene. Yeah, I guess they, fact, they don't. Uh, uh, these days, I guess the University of Western Ontario. Uh, I think they came in eleventh last year at the, in the U.S. varsity uh, scene. They didn't quite get to tier one. The two well, tiers, they didn't play right? in the Potter Cup. They played in the second division. Yeah, the yeah they played in the second. They, they came eleventh overall, I think. Uh, okay. Okay. So they they, no, they were. Like as I, yeah, uh, but no, but they. That I think they, I think there was one year that they actually, that Western Ontario actually won the, mm. uh, the intercollegiate. Well, I, mean, US they had Gary, I think Gary Wade, even before he played for Harvard, played at Western, uh, might have played for Western, uh, along with Crombie and a few others, a uh, few of our, all of our top guys who don't end up, who go to university and don't end up in the States play, probably right. uh, will play there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, yeah, Rob, you've been great with your time. Uh, uh, now, usually at the end of the uh, uh, chats with you, I like to ask you about the Yankees, but we won't go there because um, you know we know the Major League Baseball is having trouble uh, uh, these days. They're, they, they they're having a lot of tr- they're having a lot of trouble. Lot and of by issues. the way, they they also um, they lost at the American League Championship Series last year in in absolutely. The way the way they lost was enough to make you tear your hair out. Uh, they um, they ended up letting Jose Altuve, who's yeah. the only guy on the Astros who you well, that's a to- that's another story. They were stealing signs. That's the whole thing. Well, that there you go. That's another story. But but this past this past year in the playoffs, uh, he hit the home run, the walk off home run that eliminated the Yankees. Yeah, he is the only guy you can't let beat you. No, on no, that whole exactly. They yeah. should were, never. Were the bases been- loaded? No, there they was should have walked. Yeah, the intentional walking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And when you were watching this, what were you thinking? I was thinking, I can't believe they're pitching to him. Um, the uh, the the Houston ballpark has a very short left field fence. Yeah. It doesn't take yeah. much of a fly ball to hit a home run there. There was a guy on second with with two out. Yeah. So yeah. Altuve, you don't. There's no risk in walking him. No, and exactly. you've got to let, and, and you and know he's capable. He's he's he can hit one out of the park easily. He's killed the Yankees over the years. Yeah, he's the one guy you cannot let beat you. And they pitched to him, and he hit a home run, and that was it. 
So it's a terrible, terrible job uh, on, on uh, you know, uh, on Chapman's part. Was it Boone? Boone uh, who's the, the Chapman? Uh, Chapman. Chapman. Chapman decided. Chapman, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapman. Right. It was his decision. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it was his decision. That's right. And he, by the way, had given up when he was pitching for the Cubs in the 2016 World Series, when the Cubs finally won their world championship, he was the one who gave up a home run to the Cleveland hitter that tied that last game, all this, that game right. seven. So he's he's had, he's given up some very, very costly home he runs. He had a bit of scar tissue there, maybe. Exactly. So anyway, whatever. who knows? Hopefully baseball will be started this year. Mm-hmm. Bit, the Yankees have a number of people who, who have injuries, uh, yeah. who, you know, who won't be ready to start. Uh, but I'm not even think I'm not going to start thinking about baseball till it's a little closer to happening. Well, you're going to have to uh, get your baseball fix by watching the the Korean baseball league. And that that hasn't done much for me. <laughs> That's not doing yeah. much for me. Well, Rob, it, it was great catching up with you, and thanks so much for for everything. A great chat with you, and uh, let's hope things get back to some sort of normalcy. But uh, most importantly, uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm. You as well. Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to speaking again when when we have a good time to do so. Always great having Rob on. Many thanks for that. Lots of insight there on all aspects of the game, the varsity situation, the COVID situation, the pro doubles tour situation. Rob's always uh, a great uh, guy to talk to about that stuff. And as I'd like to say, he's forgotten more about the uh, the game than I'll ever know. He, he's a fountain of knowledge uh, when it comes to uh, that kind of thing, the historical side of the game. And a good pro uh, doubles player himself back in the day, and I think, still think he's still... Uh, giving it a go on the on the pro doubles tour but uh, again thanks again uh, to rob for for episode 145 and uh, thank all of you for listening uh, uh, please continue to listen uh, we're up on uh, all uh, podcast apps as far as i know uh, google play spotify itunes uh, we're up of course our main page is the sound cloud page but please go there share it with your friends give us a like give us a review uh, let me know what you think. I'm on most media platforms, Twitter, uh, in- Instagram more recently. My daughter's running that website for me, by the way. And um, uh, Facebook, I'm famously on, on Facebook and contributing on, on all of those uh, platforms. So please uh, get in touch with me that way if you feel, uh, if you, if you feel like it. Now, uh, coming up uh, later this week, we've got Arthur Gaskin, uh, a great chat with him. We just, I just had that chat, and uh, we'll be talking about uh, quite a bit with that eight-time Irish national and reigning Irish national champion. So stay tuned for that. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. Take care, and have a great day. Goodbye now.